Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are republishing a couple of older episodes this week. Uh, two episodes that worked together and therefore had to be republished together. But two episodes that we definitely wanted to share with everyone again and share with many uh, newer listeners for the first time. Yeah, because uh, mazes and labyrinths, these, this idea that these physical constructs are actually mental constructs. And in addition to this, we wanted to mention that pretty soon there is a movie called The Maze Runner, which will be released in movie theaters. It is, according to BleedingCool.com, yet another post-apocalyptic world populated by teenagers who are tasked to save the world somehow. Yeah, and I was actually just looking at it. Yeah, It stars the guy from Teen Wolf. Uh, the TV show, not not, not Jason Bateman or, okay. or anything. Uh, Michael J. Fox, or not, or not, yeah, not Michael J. Fox, but the new Teen Wolf, the one that's uh, you see on the side of buses and stuff. Oh, uh, that one. Yeah, he's in it, and uh, it looks pretty cool. It's kind of reminds me a bit of the older movie uh, Cube, you know, like a like a very uh, you know dystopian, high tech kind of a maze environment. Yeah, I like the premise of it. Um, in it, their memories, these teenagers are uh, memories are wiped out, and they run through mazes like hamsters. Later, discovering the nefarious truth behind the question, why? Yeah, and these are based, uh, by the way, on a series of young adult novels uh, by James uh, Dashner. Yeah, so we hope that you guys enjoy this. Uh, the Maze is, uh, is about, in a way, elaborate confinement. It's about confusion. It's about being cut off. It's about not knowing which way you're going and which way is the way out and if there is even a way out. Uh, if there is a limit to the the confusing layout that just flows out all around you, now one thing that's important to mention here, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna mention this not only in this episode but the part two of this uh, series to follow, but essentially you have mazes mm-hmm. and you have labyrinths, and very often these words are used interchangeably. One would be tempted to say it's elegant variation, which is when you use. Uh, like when you're talking about a, a wolf, but you use the word dog to mm-hmm. describe it. You just wanted to mix it up and use a different word, but you're actually using a word for a different thing. Well, mazes and labyrinths isn't, isn't quite that bad because the overlap between these two terms um, has been around for a while and, and it's become pretty much the you know pr- pretty much a mainstay of of uh, the English language. So uh, it, you can't get too up in arms over it. But yes. for the purposes of, of this podcast and for, and also in you know, scientific purposes. You have mazes, which are a place of confusion, Mm -hmm. a place of beatings on the walls, as we're hearing now. And then you have labyrinths. And labyrinths, as we'll discuss in the second podcast uh, more in depth, are a place of serenity. That's right. It's really a yin and yang proposition Mm -hmm. here because, yes, maze, tangle of options, choices, right? Confusion. And the labyrinth neatly laid out a meandering path, but one that has a purpose and a direction to it. So... Right now, we are going to tackle mazes, and as we say, we are podcasting today from a construction zone of our maze-like office, um, and we should probably get into more other or other examples of mazes, because when you think of mazes, or at least when I do, I tend to think of the elaborate hedge mazes, Yes. Uh, popular in the 16th through the 18th centuries. Yes. You have, um, basically, you, you can divide mazes up into two or three categories. 
well, first, there are two basic categories. There are mazes that exist in physical space and mazes that exist merely as pattern or as, uh, you know, as something drawn on a sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the most part, we're going to be talking in, in this podcast, though, about actual physical mazes that you traverse physically. And these, you tend to see landscape mazes and architectural mazes, mazes that are made out of, well, you could do dirt, but most of the time hedges. And then there are architectural mazes where it is an actual physical thing, walls enclosing you. Everyone will probably think back to the, the classic Jim Henson, David Bowie starring film Labyrinth, <laughs> yes. which d- despite being called Labyrinth, Everything in the movie is a maze. Right. Everything is about confusing because uh, Sarah has to get to the castle at the center so that she can free Toby from the Goblin King. But uh, nobody wants her to actually get there. The, the Goblin King doesn't actually want women showing up and stealing his stolen babies from him. So, yeah, um, and there's a neat little uh, number, like a magic song by David Bowie, in which he's tossing this baby around. Oh, yes. And by the way, he looks like Parker Posey to me in, in a Tina Turner wig. Yeah. In this he 80s flick. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of heavy pop synthesizers going on. It's, it's pretty awesome stuff. It, it is an awesome movie. But pretty much everything you see in there is is a maze. From the early stone mazes that Sarah is going through, where it's very much an architectural maze with walls all around mm-hmm. her, till later she's going through a landscape maze of hedges. Elsewhere, people may have encountered mazes uh, in the form of corn mazes, where someone cuts uh, a maze through the maze. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Nice. And you have to the solve M-A-I, it around, yeah, yeah. around Halloween time. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly And every year in the up. news, there's always a, an account of a family getting lost in one of those mazes. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I haven't, I've never seen one of those. And I've worked in small papers for quite a while in the past. So it's strange that we never had that story. Well, and then they're never found again. Are you sure that you're just, you didn't used to live near a particularly bad a maze where they, they really went overboard on making it complex and, uh, and, and unescapable? No, no, no. And then there's like these like sort of evilish children that are dressed yeah. in Amish-like clothing. Oh, yes, the children of Milling the around. Yeah. Yeah, you've not heard about this? No, I guess this is, this is one of your like hometown weird Yeah, things. it's pretty common. <laughs> Elsewhere in, uh, in fiction... Um, mazes have factored into Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Mm-hmm. The big climactic scene in that takes place within a maze. Harry's running around completely disoriented, uh, doesn't know where he's going, and trying, you know, trying to figure out how to uh, escape the maze or, or make it to the center. I believe it was. What I like about that maze too is that the maze is alive. The root system yes. is, you know, trying to tangle them and pull them in. Right. And likewise, in Labyrinth, the maze that uh, Sarah finds herself in is constantly changing. There are like little goblin dudes running around and like changing her markings and presumably changing the actual physical layout mm-hmm. of the uh, of the maze behind her. Another fabulous maze uh, in in film is that in The Shining. Oh yeah. Now it's different from in the book. Uh, there, there's just some hedge animals that are creepy and move when you're not looking at them. But in Stanley Kubrick's phenomenal film vision of the novel, he incorporates this this maze, this giant hedge maze. And there's a model of the hedge maze. And and the maze comes to symbolize the house itself. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the house, the haunted Overlook Hotel, is also a sort of maze. And then, curiously enough, like another maze we're about to discuss, there is a deadly person, a, a deadly entity at the center of it. In The Shining, it's Jack Torrance, the writer, who ends up becoming possessed by the evil of the place and then is hunting his family through both the, the 
maze that is the house and the, and the actual hedge maze out there in the cold. What I really like about that maze, too, is that it's got those, um, those feelings of isolation, mm-hmm. terror, and then disorientation in that maze. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in, in our fear response, our stress response, too, um, as we go through mazes. But to me, that captures that perfectly. There's also an excellent fictional maze in House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. Basically, the book itself is a maze. There are all these footnotes and footnotes upon footnotes, and there's a story within a story in a documentary film within a story, and uh, the character himself, uh, this guy Navidson, ends up uh, trying to traverse, trying to explore this ever-changing, featureless, black, otherworldly maze that branches out uh, from this haunted house. Mm -hmm. Uh, Presumably haunted, but you never really know exactly what's going on with this place. The Name of the Rose by um, Umberto Eco uh, is pretty great in that it features a library that is itself a maze. And this is based in large part on uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges' The Library of Babel, where Borges described an infinite library maze that contains not only all books but all possible books. So it just spreads out forever. And so in The Name of the Rose, Umberto Eco creates within this medieval abbey this this maze library of forbidden and restricted books. In writing about it, he says that this is uh, this library is what is called a rhizome space, which means there's uh, there's virtually no end to it. You could wander this thing forever mm-hmm. uh, without finding an exit unless you knew how to escape the maze. But perhaps the most famous and and just the most iconic maze from uh, from myth and fiction and legend is of course the maze of Minos. Yes, and this is the tale of Theseus, correct, the hero, Mm -hmm. and the Minotaur, who is at the center of what they call, again, there's confusion between uh, labyrinth and maze, but Mm -hmm. is at the middle of this and is waiting for people to come through and devour them. Yes, and kind of wandering the halls and howling. And the the maze in this, it was commanded to be built by uh, King Minos, Mm -hmm. who uh, has this monstrous son. That is the Minotaur. This half, half man and half animal. Yes, right? yeah, monstrous flesh-eating creature. So he has Daedalus, who of course built the wings for his son Icarus, mm-hmm. uh, just, uh, you know, the, the fantastic engineer of Hellenistic lore. He's commanded to build it, and, he, and in fact builds a maze so complicated that he himself has trouble escaping from it at one point. But this becomes just the sort of the defining idea of a maze, this complex, confusing place that you're trapped in, you're trying to escape, and then with the, the Minotaur, you have this added threat that you are not alone in this confusing space, this confusing, unreal world. There's also something that is searching for you, something that, or even if it's not searching for you, you, you may run into it, and if you run into it, it's all over. Yeah, and we will talk a little bit more about the Minotaur as represented by our consciousness in a bit and how mm-hmm. our mind is a bit like a maze. But I did want to mention that a, a non-fictional maze that is probably what you could call the mother of mazes um, is known as the Hampton Court Maze. And this is outside of London. It is really an iconic maze. Um, it is uh, at the Hampton Court Palace. And it's thought that it was designed around 1690 originally planted using hornbeam and later replanted using yew. And it covers a third of an acre. It's trapezoid in shape, and it is the U.K.'s oldest surviving hedge maze. In fact, I'm sure listeners, some of our listeners in the U.K. have actually experienced this firsthand. At the time, it was constructed to amuse the ladies and lords of the court, which I think is so... I love this idea. It's Mm -hmm. so fascinating to me that people have so much time on their hands 
that it wasn't enough to have a palace and, and have all the extravagance of a palace and servants. Then you had to create a maze out on your lawn in order to amuse the people within the palace. Something that would actually um, excite fear in your visitors to the maze, right? Yeah, you were you likened it yesterday uh, when we were talking about it to uh, to to like a horror movie mm-hmm. in a, in an age when you didn't have horror movies. Uh, uh, and and certainly you can also liken it to a roller coaster. It is an artificial construction uh, designed to create these feelings of uh, fear and anxiety in the individuals who are traversing it. So it's interesting to me that the upper class, just as a, you know, on a social note, that you would be so free from concerns or troubles that you would have to create this this uh, 3D representation of fear to put yourself through that experience. Um, and of course, we do that today with with haunted houses. But what is cool about the Hampton Court maze is that this is the maze that really helped to inform science. And what I mean by that is there was a graduate student named Willard Small. He was the first to use a rodent maze to study learning. And he did this in 1901, and he created a platform about six feet long by eight feet wide, covered it with sawdust, and then divided it into galleries with walls of wire netting. And he modeled it on a diagram of the hedge maze at Hampton Court. So this was such a famous maze in in the minds of everybody, particularly during the turn of the century, that it really helped um, this particular student to create this thing that really (laughs) took off in science, at least for a a good 60 years. Yeah, because even after they stopped using the replica of the Hampton Court maze, which which from above looks, it's it's weirdly shaped, like it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a hacked off pyramid, kind of like a a weird battle axe looking design. It's it's strange looking. Or kind of like a, a robot woman's hips. It's I interesting you say battle axe because uh labra is oh, a yes, means a, right. yeah, axe in, in um in Greek. And so that's when you look at the root of labyrinth it is axe. But hmm. anyway, yeah. But even after they stopped using the Hampton maze, they uh, used a simplified version of it called the elevated plus maze, which basically looked like a plus sign. In other words, it's two hallways that uh they cross over each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like the simplest maze possible because it sends the mouse or, or whatever that's inside it, it, it they, they come to a point where they have three choices. They can go left, they can go right, or they can go forward. Mm-hmm. Or, well, presumably they could go backwards as well. So it's a, it's a simplified version of the, of the maze, the maze in brief, you know. But what are they trying to, to study with all of this, right? It comes back to how a maze makes us feel. Well, we've touched on this a little bit already. It, uh, when you're inside of a maze, you feel, first of all, you feel confined. You're definitely in a strange place. Mm-hmm. You, you don't know which way to go. Should I go this way? Should I go that way? If I go, if, if I go this way, am I going to run into a dead end? Everyone hates running into a dead end. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, you, you think of actual real world versions of this. Like if you've ever been in a, um, well, say the haunted, say take a haunted house. Mm-hmm. Now, a haunted house is not a complete maze because nobody wants to build a professional haunted attraction where people go in and have trouble getting out. Because as we discussed in our Science of Haunted Houses episode, you got to move a certain amount of people through that haunted house to make money. Mm-hmm. You need people going in, you need people going out at a, at a decent click. But at uh, Netherworld Haunted House in Atlanta, they frequently do have this section, this kind of a mirror maze, where you do at least momentarily become disoriented and not know and you don't know which way to go and so that raises your anxiety you you 
you feel stressful because you're like, well, I thought this is what we, how do I get out of here? Which way am I supposed to be going? And I, and I find in those environments too, not only in other world, but also in like real world environments, like a museum, mm-hmm. there's also that, that anxiety where you reach like a, a weird kind of a, a part of the museum where you wonder if this is off limits. Like maybe they didn't, they didn't make it clear enough. Am I right. wandering into restricted territory uh-huh. or likewise, uh, any, new city that you're in. You're wandering around and you're wondering, am I wandering into a restricted space? Is someone going to yell at me for being here? Mm-hmm. And I just start getting anxious about that because I, I hate it You know, when oh, I'm, I'm in trouble, somebody's yelling at me. And then second, am I wandering into a contested space, which especially in big cities, you're like, am I wandering into a no man's land of post-apocalyptic violence <laughs> right, and muggings right. and face stabbings? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know. And that raises your instincts and your anxiety and you're, you're just on edge the whole time. Well, because in, in, uh, in my world, I think of it as just a microcosm of the, the minotaur in your head already, right? Mm-hmm. So within our own minds, we can think of them as mazes. In particular, we can think about the default mode network. Um, this is three areas of the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, the medial parietal cortex, and the medial temporal lobes. We've talked about these before mm-hmm. being the default mode network. And this is the area of your brain that deals with the eye of ourselves, the chattering um sort of subconscious level where we sit there and we turn over things that concern ourselves and our ego. And this is really where you start to see that the mind is like a maze in this sense because you're going through these thought loops that you've probably gone through a million times in your life about certain subjects. They tend to come up in this area of the brain, right? These concerns that you have usually about yourself. And it's kind of like a hyperactive chat room for your brain, and it acts like an echo chamber in this sense. And we've talked about this before, that when you have hyperactivity in this part of the brain, it can lead to clinical depression, right? So that's why I say that this default mode network is really something, this maze that we deal with every day. Yeah, we sort of, we backtrack and we wander the confusing corridors of the past. Mm -hmm. We try and skip ahead a little bit and figure out where we're going in the future. And uh, for many of us, the whole time, there well, for all of us, there are certain minotaurs out there in that maze as well. I mean, of course, the big one is death. Uh, that beast is out there somewhere. Maybe he is around the corner. Maybe he is on the other side of the, the maze entirely with many, many walls between you and it. But you know it's there, and you always hear its howling. I love that you brought that up, because um, when I was thinking about mazes, and I was thinking about how a maze is really a concrete manifestation of our abstract mind maze, mm-hmm. I began to think about Sarah Winchester. Now, we have an article that concerns her. This is the mystery house lady. Yeah, yeah. She is the Winchester rifle heiress who, at the turn of the century, believed herself to be haunted by the victims of the rifles that her husband's company produced. Oh. And now uh, she had some things, uh, traumatic events that happened in her life. Uh, she lost her child and her husband. And after that, for 38 years, her house was constantly under construction. And she was changing the configuration of her house really to create a maze. And the reason that she did that is she wanted to confuse the spirits, the ghosts of of the uh, people that she thought were killed by those rifles. So if you've ever visited the house, uh, this is in San Jose, California. You may have firsthand seen that there are false stairways to nowhere. There are something like 47 chimneys in the house. 
Um, some of them are built all the way up. Some of them are not. Some of them actually aren't working chimneys, fireplaces. Um, and at some point, I believe there were 500 rooms constructed, but she would have them demolished and then rebuilt. Wow. So here you go. I mean, here's talking about the hyperactivity of this part of the brain that is concerned with, um, you know, fear and uh, the self. This is someone who you can really see her own brain being manifested in the design of her house. Well, and it's and in a way, it's uh, it's kind of just another take on the old idea that if you you have a criminal that needs to be executed, you hang them at uh, crossroads so that they'll have difficulty finding their way back to their hometown where they can haunt everybody and be a menace. So, but in what is a crossroads, but a plus maze, mm-hmm. like we discussed earlier, where you, you place the mouse at the center, the rat at the center of the plus maze, and the, the rat has no which no idea which way to go. So presumably, the ghost of a of an executed uh, murderer is there at the crossroads, has no idea what to go. Maybe he locks down and doesn't go anywhere. Maybe he heads off in the wrong direction. And, and this is so cool because, again, this is this idea of disorientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about anxiety, disorientation, and mazes. All right, we're back. And I do want to mention that as we're getting into the, the way mazes affect our mind and our body, a text that we found particularly helpful in this was The Science of Healing Places by uh, Esther M. Steinberg. Just a fabulous book from beginning to end. And it deals with how spaces affect us, how the layout of a space or the, uh, the particulars of an environment can have a beneficial effect on us or a detrimental effect on us. And in a large sense, the purest distillation of this idea is the idea of maze and labyrinth. And in this podcast, we are, of course, talking about the maze. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, it's just this, the maze is, is amazing in that <laughs> it is this kind of perfect physical manifestation of an idea, or even more than an idea, just like a state of mind, a state of the world. Like, in a way, the maze is this perfect manifestation of the of the human experience in its confusing sense, you know? Like, it's, I, it, I, it makes me think of the obelisk from, uh, or the monolith, rather, from uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. You know, it's just that. You can basically, just thinking about it, you can sort of catch the hum. Yeah, you know, we are talking about mazes in a very literal sense today. Mm -hmm. But if you took a bird's eye view of yourself right now in this time and space, you would see that you are in a maze somewhere, right? Even if you're just walking down the city block, you are within a maze. Um, But what is so interesting about mazes is this idea that in, as you say, the, the purest sense, it's taking all of those different senses of the way that we perceive the world and creating this this uh, construct that really amplifies all those feelings. And so when we talk about new experiences and uh, we talk about how we perceive things, there's some anxiety that comes along with that. Yeah. Now, stress and anxiety. So stress is not a new idea. People have been stressed out for ages. For instance, uh, the ancient Romans used a word, stringere, which means to squeeze tight, to graze, to touch, or Mm -hmm. injure. But it wasn't until around uh, 1936, a Nature article by scientist Hans Seeley published this article where he talked about stress in the terms of a body's nonspecific response to an external demand. 
1934, physiologist Walter B. Cannon for the first time showed that animals produce adrenaline in response to stress, and this is the first proof that environments trigger bodily responses like this. Mm-hmm. And so in the decades that follow, we learn even more about how the brain responds to stress. For instance, that hormones and chemicals in the brain are released to deal with stress. Namely, we have a stress hormone called CRH that's a corticotropin releasing hormone. Uh, and this forces the pituitary gland to pump out more ACTH. And this travels through the blood to the uh, adrenal glands, and this makes them pump out cortisol. Cortisol, of course, being the stress hormone. And all of this is really important. You want to be able to tap into this stress response, right, this fear response, because right. um, that's really what helps us to tune into the details in a novel place or situation in order to detect the way out to survive in some way. That's when we see the the whites of our eyes getting even larger because we're trying to really pay attention to our environments. The problem, of course, comes when we're overloaded with a stress response and when we're in in, uh, this state of fear for longer than we need to be. And we'll talk about this in a bit, too, uh, when the situation doesn't necessarily call for the stress response that is elicited, right? Right. Because, uh, again, when the, when the stress hormones kick in, the nerve cells fire to release an adrenaline-like nerve chemical mm-hmm. called norepinephrine. And this, is, and this is when the brain's fear center, the amygdala, becomes active. And, again, adrenaline is important. And we'll discuss that a little more as we go here. But this is how you want to feel inside of a maze. Because the maze triggers anxiety and stress because of uh, essentially four things, according to Esther M. Steinberg. First of all, you're in an architectural maze or even a hedge maze. Mm-hmm. What can you see? What What are you seeing around you with your sight? This Im- key mm-hmm. sense of it. Really, just whatever is on either side, right? It's like right. a horse with blinders. Yeah, it's like blinder here, blinder there. You can see a little ways in front of you. Turn around, you can see a little ways behind you. But mm-hmm. for the most part, your sense of the world via sight is really limited. And uh, the next one is one that I never really thought about all that much, but you have no clear sound to guide you either. Because if you're uh, if you're in a hedge maze, there's going to be a certain amount of sound buffering. Right, yeah. And then if you are in a, an actual architectural maze, you're going to have sound buffering plus the potential for echoes as well. Okay. As, like, for instance, the sound of that minotaur, uh, his howl echoing through the tunnels. Uh, so already our sight, our ability to see the world is uh, significantly altered, and our ability to... To navigate the world via sound is significantly altered. Right, and I don't know if the listeners can detect this, but there was just a bunch of, uh, of hammering going on, and I was just thinking, like, we're inside of our little maze right now, inside yeah. the podcast booth. I have no idea what direction that's coming from. I don't from. either. I can feel it. Actually, I can feel it on my feet, but I know that it's not under me. I know it's probably on the other side of the wall. But again, here's this idea that you can't get your normal sound clues correct. Um, you, you have limited vision. You have a new alien environment. Yeah, again, this is like a, a maze, like a straight-up maze, like out of The Shining. Mm-hmm. This is an unreal environment in its like, in its purest sense. It's a, it may be an analog for uh, confusion in the mind and mm-hmm. puzzles of the mind. It may be an analog for potentially confusing environments in the natural world and certainly in the unnatural world of cities. But this is its purest sense. It is alien in every sense of the word. And the worst part of it is you now have choices and you have uncertainty along with that novelty. And think about your poor hippocampus. This is the part of your brain that is trying to navigate, right, spatially and is using, usually using memory to do this. So it's a little bit like if you were dropped into a new city and you had to find your bearings, what happens? You feel stressed out. You feel a little bit more aware uh, because this is the part of your brain that's saying, I don't have a blueprint for this and I don't know what is the right choice. 
Yeah, like for us, uh, like I know when I go to New York City, I certainly don't go there enough to where I know my way around. Mm-hmm. So when I emerge from a subway uh, out onto the street, I'll have no idea which way is north, which way is south. What does that street sign say up there? Which does that one say back there? Did I take the wrong course? Am I completely out of bounds here uh, in, in regards to where I'm trying to get to? And, and certainly even taking something like uh, Atlanta's MARTA every day, which is basically a plus uh, plus Marseille, because <laughs> yeah, it it's north, <laughs> north and south, east and west. But, but still, especially at the at the very center of that, the the center of confusion, mm-hmm. which is a, a place called the Five, Five Points. Points yeah. um, you do see outsiders and tourists and people who normally don't take the train wandering around confused, and you mm-hmm. can see the and feel the anxiety and the stress is coming off of them because they're like, "Where am I? Which way am I going?" and what are all these Minotaurs doing here? I was going to say, it's so sad when you see them gobbled up in the yes. corners of the station uh, by the Minotaurs. But this reminds me, again, of the rats in Back to the Hampton Court maze, because, mm-hmm. again, this is the maze that inspired the elevated plus sign maze. And the reason why rats were studied in this configuration is because it's really easy to study anxiety in this, as you had pointed out before. Yeah, you want to make an, an animal feel anxiety, it's just, bam, put them in that space and... The environment makes them feel it. And the reason why uh, rats had such a run with these mazes, so to speak, is because, uh, you know, pharmacological studies began with this to see if they could use certain substances to reduce that anxiety. And so they had rats run these mazes again and again. In fact, rats became the gold standard of animals to use in psychology experiments. So... Again, what Esther Sternberg is saying, that when you have all of these different elements, you have the novelty, you have a restriction in sight and sound, and you have in the case of the elevated plus sign elevation to throw into that, uh, the rat will actually freeze at these points that offer what she says the most frightening combination of choices um, available. Yeah, yeah, and we're, like freezing... Uh, we're talking increased defecation, mm-hmm. uh, elevations of cortisol, the stress hormone in the blood. Mm-hmm. And it isn't vital to point out that it's important to have that stress hormone. Um, it helps us solve the maze. Uh, if, if balanced, it focuses our attention. It gives us energy. It raises our awareness of the surroundings so that we notice the small details that may lead to our escape. You think of any story where an individual is in uh, a maze. What do they have to do? They have to, they're, they're on guard. They might have to face a minotaur for crying out loud. But then they also have to be super observant because uh, especially if the maze is kind of featureless, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they're marking stuff on the walls with chalk or they're using string, whatever. But they, you, you have to, you, you can't just calmly walk through. This is a confusing, challenging environment. Uh, again, it's a representation of all the confusion and risks in the real world. And you're feeling it all legitimately in the maze. Yeah, and she talks about this dose effect and this beneficial stress response as opposed to something that becomes detrimental. And uh, in the book, she talks about Gary Aston Jones. He's a neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania. And what he did is he embedded electrodes into the brains of monkeys, specifically a place called the locus ceruleus. And this is the region that governs vigilance, focused attention, and the adrenaline component of the stress response. And what happened is that when the monkeys were relaxed, there was just a little bit of nerve cell firing in this part of the brain. But when they were focusing on something like pressing a lever to obtain a pellet of food, there was a lot of nerve cell firing in the locus cerealis. So this is a good thing, right? You see Mm -hmm. the monkey performing at optimal levels under stress to a certain degree. Uh, But when the researchers stressed them a lot, 
all of the nerve cells began firing. And this, says Sternberg, is what led to the monkey failing at the task that the researchers were, were putting them to. So, again, it's this overload of circuitry in the stress response that um, makes us freeze at times. Yeah, Steinberg compares it to a, a U-shaped curve. Think of it this way. You have a speech to give, kind of like uh, our keynote that we gave uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, in Minneapolis. So you want to go in there with a certain amount of of, uh, of energy, right? Mm-hmm. You're about to give a keynote. You don't want to be like, I just woke up. You know, you, you, gotta have you don't want to be groggy. Yeah, you want to have a certain amount of energy. Mm-hmm. So... This U-shaped curve, uh, it's like a little hill, okay? So as our anxiety rises up towards the middle of this hill, at the very top of that hill, that is like prime keynote territory. Mm-hmm. You're, you're at the maximum amount, amount of energy and anxiety and stress that will allow you to get in there and just kill, you know, to just get in there and deliver you're, on right. all fronts. You're alert and focused. Right. But then as that, if that anxiety builds past that point, then it begins to dip down. Uh, and at the bottom of that hill is freezing up, pooping yourself, and falling off the stage. <laughs> like, utter, complete, so much stress over it that you cannot even function at a basic human level. Mm-hmm. And then everywhere between the peak of that hill and the bottom, there, you know, all the other things that can happen uh, where, oh, that speech didn't really go too well. My nerves were a little frayed, you mm-hmm. know. So a U-shaped curve. And so the ideally, if you're in the maze, you want to... Uh, be somewhere near the top of that curve, at the top of that hill, because that is the mindset that you need to solve the maze, and it's the the mindset that your body is is going for. Like that's where you're. That's why you're having these responses, because the body's like, this is confusing. Let's get in maze solving mode. Well, and here's the deal. If if just a, some practical advice here, if anybody is going to give a keynote address and they feel like they are about to go down the hill into self defecation. <laughs> Take that moment to actually stand in a powerful pose. We talked about this yes. before. Um, because this pose, if, if you stand in it for two minutes or more, will actually decrease your cortisol stress levels and increase your testosterone. The increase of the testosterone is important because that helps your confidence. The lowering of the cortisol stress means that you will not poop your pants. So just a little FYI there. So what other methods are at our disposal for escaping a maze, solving a maze? How are we going to get out of this maze and somehow make it back to our chairs and our desks and presumably our families and homes? Okay, well, um, here is what many people say uh, is the best way to solve a maze, and it's called the right-hand trick, but it's sometimes called the left-hand trick because it doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. which hand. You just keep a hand on one wall, and it doesn't matter which one. Just pick left or right when you enter, and then you follow the path and keep that hand as you are following that path. This way, uh, if you get to a dead end, you can negotiate it by just following the three walls and then moving back the way that you came out. And eventually, you will find the exit. Okay. This is the idea. All right. Now, this usually works with most mazes, but if the maze has a central blank area uh, occupied by a second maze, then you're toast. (laughs) <laughs> it's not going to work. Well, certainly you can uh, follow Theseus's uh, advice and, uh, and have some yarn with you or some string and throw that behind you and just hope that nothing is going to follow in your wake to disrupt the path you're setting for yourself. In The Name of the Rose, the character of Brother William of Baskerville says, To find the way out of a labyrinth, there is only one means. At every new junction never seen before, the path we have taken will be marked with three signs. If 
because of previous signs on some of the paths of the junction, you see that the junction has already been visited, you will make only one mark on the path you have taken. If all the apertures have already been marked, then you must retrace your steps. And he continues a little bit on this line and then uh, adds so that the younger uh, monk that he's uh, he's taking with him on this journey says, how do you know that? Are you an expert on labyrinths? And he says, no, I'm citing an ancient text I once read. And Adso asks, and by observing this rule, you get out? Uh, and he says, almost never, as far as I know. But we will still try it all the same. So, <laughs> so you're going to have to be patient with the maze, I guess is the, uh, and you're going to have to you're going to have to remain calm but alert. Be very aware of your surroundings, mm-hmm. and uh, and don't be afraid to make some marks and notations. Um, and two other thoughts of comfort here. One is that we have learned this before. We've talked about this, uh, that a rat's brain during sleep sometimes mimics what happens during the day. So rats in a maze, you can actually see the specific patterns of neurons fired in the rat's brains while running a lab maze that appeared that day. Um, and then during REM sleep for those uh, rats. So in other words... Rats can dream about the maze that they've been in, and mm-hmm. they can try to figure out a better way to approach it next time. Yeah, so, and they can learn to navigate a maze, a given maze. They can, yeah. actually. Yeah, they can be trained to do this. And Just part as of this, humans do. Any human who lives in a city has learned to navigate a maze. Yeah, and part of this training, of course, has to do with REM sleep and going over this material again and again. So just that, that to me, is very comforting when I think about getting out of a maze. And if you are in a maze and you're feeling lots of angst, maybe you're in a city, a new city, or a, a maze itself or you're drawing a maze uh, or trying to get out of one that's on a piece of paper, uh, here's what you should do. You should start to think about the Benny Hill theme music because <laughs> this apparently is very helpful. I think it decreases anxiety. And I say this because I watched a clip of The Shining that was scored to the Benny Hill theme music <laughs> and it was far less frightening. And if you want to see that, check out the blog post that accompanies this, this podcast episode. All right. Well, I think I hear the Minotaur calling. So we probably need to wrap this up. I do want to close out with a poem by uh, Jorge Luis Borges, who, again, was obsessed with mazes and and labyrinths and mirrors and all matter of mentally complex arrangements. And this is his poem called The Labyrinth, but it, it, it really sums up the feeling of being in a maze. Zeus himself could not undo the web of stone closing around me. I have forgotten the men I was before. I follow the hated path of monotonous walls that is my destiny. Severe galleries which curve in secret circles to the end of the years. Parapets cracked by the day's usury. In the pale dust, I have discerned signs that frighten me. In the concave evenings, the air has carried a roar toward me, or the echo of a desolate howl. I know there is another in the shadows, whose fate it is to wear out the long solitudes which weave and unweave this Hades, and to long for my blood and devour my death. Each of us seeks the other, if only this were the final day of waiting. So there you have it. We have escaped from the maze. And in our next episode, we will explore the labyrinth. That's right, the yin to the yang. And it is a very different beast here. So do check it out. In the meantime, uh, you can always check us out. In several different places. Yes, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is the mothership. That is where all the podcast episodes live way back to the very beginning. You'll find our blog post. You'll find our videos. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts, including Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, uh, SoundCloud, also Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. That's our YouTube account. Go check out all our videos there. Follow us to support the show. And, uh, Julie, if people want to uh, email us, how might they go about that? 
Oh, well, they can send it through the maze of fiber optics, and they can do it by sending an email to blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 